0: While that's going on, we're continuing our series looking at what the early church did. So, the passage, as always, is Acts chapter 2. If I can find it, Acts chapter uh, 2 and verse 42. Now, as you might have noticed, each week we're reading the same passage, and then we're just picking up on a different phrase uh, from the passage. I'm reading from the ESV version. I think we'll, you'll find comes up behind, but uh, do follow it in your own Bible as well. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the phrase we are particularly looking at comes in verse 42, and they devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So we're looking at devotion, what were they devoted to? And the part I have for today is the breaking of bread. If I just say that phrase, what image comes into your mind? What do you think? Because I can certainly guarantee whatever you would think would be different from what the people here thought. Now, I know I've used this as an illustration when speaking before, but some of you about the same age of me might recognise this book, uh, John Seymour's Complete Book of Self-Sufficiency, published originally in hardback in 1976. This is the paperback ed- edition from 1978. And in the late 70s and 80s, if you were concerned about the environment, if you're concerned about the uh, predictions from the UN that by the middle of the 1980s there would be famine across the world, If you were concerned about the fact that in the early 80s that there would be the so-called window of opportunity when the Soviet Union would be able to blast the West with its nuclear weapons before the West could respond and therefore uh, mutually assured destruction would no longer apply and they might take that advantage, this was the book to have so you could develop your self-sufficiency skills so you could survive. I know at least one other person in the church still has their copy and uh, somebody who's moved on had one. My daughter was saying, you know, come the zombie apocalypse, she'll make sure that uh, Lynn and myself are in their group because we've got some know-how to grow our own food and so on. This was sort of the self-sufficiency book of the late 70s. If you go back 199 years to 1822 a book was published called Cottage Economy which was the first self-sufficiency book published in English by a radical politician called William Cobbett In it he well he's a sort of uh, politician who published Uh, Newspapers which got him into trouble and uh, ranted on a bit. But he rants at various times against the evils afflicting the English working classes and labouring classes in the countryside. And three of these evils were potatoes, tea and Methodist ministers. (laughs) (laughs) The reason potatoes and tea were in his bad books is because they were replacing good old English bread and beer. And his view was that potatoes and tea were a very weak, inferior substitute. But you probably wouldn't like one of these main reasons, because if you lived on bread and beer... You only need to have to bake bread once a week, maybe make your beer once every fortnight, so therefore you only needed a fire in your house once a week, therefore you didn't need to uh, get in fuel every day. Well, if you depended on potatoes and tea, you needed to have a fire every day and that cost you because you had to have the fuel to cook them every day.
1: Now, I'm not sure if you
0: would like to live in a house with no heating in the winter for six days a week, but he obviously thought that that was better for people than eating potatoes and drinking tea. Okay, bit of a story, but my point is what assumptions we make about food and how we view food have changed over the years. So, that's going back 200 years And obviously he was looking back to the golden age of his childhood about 50 years earlier, in the sort of mid-1750s or thereabouts. Go back 2,000 years and how you would eat, how you would see food, how it would affect you in your community would be, again, different. So when here... Luke in Acts is talking about the people breaking bread, you cannot guarantee whatever you were thinking when I said what do you think would be different from what they would be thinking and what they would be experiencing. Now my purpose today isn't to try and justify the way we do breaking bread or uh, to do down how other ways people do it. But I think we want to look at what is actually behind this. Now, what can we learn just from this passage? And I've gone and uh, lost my face in my notes. so I'll quickly find it. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. The problem with interpreting any passage, and it'll come up with the other ones, is we can very easily read what we want to think into the passage. And because it's not very detailed, you can get away with it to some extent. But what it would seem here is breaking of bread is separate from going to the temple to worship. Now, from what we had earlier, when they had the devoted to the apostles' teaching, that probably took place in one of the courtyards, or whatever, of the temple. And obviously, the early Christians, being at that point, if not exclusively Jewish, but if not exclusively Jewish, 99 point whatever percent probably Jewish, going to the temple to worship because worship was taking place in the temple at that point because it hadn't been destroyed would be the natural thing to do. So, although you can't be certain there seems to be that the breaking of bread is separate from the actual time of worship. And the breaking of bread much more is reflected in that they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. and so therefore breaking of bread at this point was probably done in their homes as people met together and shared meals together because we told in this passage that they were sharing everything in common so having meals together would be very likely one of the difficulties i had in preparing this and i have in preaching it is that I know I am very bad at doing what I'm convinced is true about this. As elders, we don't see breaking of bread as something which is exclusive to what we do in church. We do break bread and share the wine in church because that's when we're meeting together and as we can see in Corinthians, obviously things moved on from this pattern and... Later in the uh, letters, we don't seem to get the Christians sharing everything in common in the way the early Jerusalem church did. So, but what we can learn from this is that actually breaking of bread is not something which is, if you like, super religious, which can only take place within a service. It can take place when we meet together it can take place when we meet in our growth groups. And I know I've said in the past, you know, go ahead, break bread together in your growth groups. And I know in our growth group, we do it about once a year if we're lucky. Yeah, it's probably about that. And if I wanted to do something about it, I could. After all, I could bring a loaf of bread and a bottle of wine along, I'm sure Ian wouldn't object. You know, but I don't. Uh, No, we could break bread and share wine together if you've got others around for a meal. Looking at what the Bible says, I've seen no issue with that. But I don't, or very rarely do that, or in a family. So it's one of these things we tend to get, I think we get ourselves into a sort of mentality of thinking, breaking bread, sharing the wine is something we do on a Sunday, and we do it, do it in that sort of context. Which, as I say, I can't see anything wrong with it, doing that. But it's not, I can't see it's exclusive to that either. So, let's be thankful. Because what do we do when we break bread and drink the wine? With thank, reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us and being thankful what better than when we have a meal to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us and be thankful because not only has he done brought us salvation we're provided with food week by week day by day as well so that sort of thing I'm very much preaching to myself on that one because if we go back to when Jesus broke bread and drank the wine, he wasn't doing anything different. Those were parts of the Passover service. So he was just taking what was normal. You don't need to turn to it, but in Acts 20, sorry, not Acts, Luke 24 and verse 30, when the two people on the Emmaus Road, got to Emmaus and asked Jesus to stay is when he broke the bread as they started eating together that they recognised him. So again that wasn't anything out of the ordinary, it was in the normal everyday thing. Another thing we need to remember is that in the days of the early church unless you were very wealthy, you lived in very cramped conditions. The evidence is that the population density in a typical Roman city would have been higher than you'd get now in a city like Mumbai or Karkata. You think about the most densely populated places in the world now, you'd probably have to go higher than that to get a Roman city. So therefore, you didn't have much space in your house. So if you're meeting together, and you're getting a large number of people together, you would have to do it in the house of a wealthier person who's got the bigger space. Which takes us to 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, which is the first reference to breaking of bread, uh, which first recording of that which we now still have. Obviously because Paul's letters were written before the Gospels and the Acts were were written. This is what he said there. I didn't give uh, the team uh, advance notice so you'll just have to listen or following your own Bible, this is 1 Corinthians 11 from verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better but for the worse. And in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that some who are genuine among you might be recognized. but when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Up in the church office, we've got a book where an American Presbyterian has sort of taking Paul's letters, tried to imagine what life in the early Corinthian church would be like. And when it comes to describing the Lord's Supper, it sounds about what you'd expect an American Presbyterian to think the Lord's Supper would have been like in some way, but that's natural. We always put our own expectations in. But if you take a Roman wealthy household, and if you want to know what it looks like, you can go to Lunningstone, just near the M25-M20 junction, where there's a Roman villa which is being excavated. Seems to be evidence that the people who lived there were Christians, so it's quite interesting. Although you've obviously only got the floor plan uh, there now. But what you would have had, you would have had a a sort of smallish area where the family ate and where you had guests. You would have then had a wider area around it where you might have had other visitors who were less important. From what we know from the uh, records of the Roman time very often the family and the honored guests would be given much better food than the rest and therefore seeing most of us tend to behave when uh, the way we behave normally, if you like, outside a Christian context. It's quite possible that in the early church, people did that because that's was what was, everybody did, that was what was normal. Or, as in this context, as Paul's writing, you brought your own food along and ate it and ate together. Whichever it was, we don't really know. But obviously what is happening is some people are getting a lot more than the others. Could be just that those who were wealthier and not having to work 12 hours a day for their living got there earlier and scoffed all the good food before the people who got there after work turned up. Who knows? But there's a problem. And... I think we need to be careful when we interpret this passage because I've gained when you come to look at things more closely you start of think oh I didn't really look at it that way we often pick up on from verse 28 in chapter 11 let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup fine good thing to do but let's go on For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What do we need to examine ourselves about predominantly? About our way we relate to the body. The way we relate to the church. Because what was Paul saying he couldn't commend them for? In verse 22 he says, Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So one of, I think, the most important things, as we come and break bread together, it's important because it's something we do together, and it's something we do the same together. It's something where we don't discriminate between one group of people and another. Back in the 1980s, I was very concerned about, you know, how do you get, I was involved in a small house church in a village out in Bolton at the time, how do you get a church to grow? And there was quite a lot of stuff at that point coming out from America on church growth movement. And the point, one point they made is if you target a particular sector of society, you can grow your church very quickly. Because everybody's the same and it's easy to attract somebody to a church where everybody is like them. And I remember thinking at the time that that didn't sit well. I could see the sociological logic of it, but for my readings of scripture, the whole point about the church is that there's people of all types, different races, different social classes. And I think that's something we have to keep very careful that we don't become a church just for one particular type. I think one reason New Frontiers Churches possibly, as a group, haven't grown as quickly as some other groups have, is because we do keep this as a value that our churches are for everyone. And that's difficult because we offend one another we have different backgrounds we have different assumptions but if we're going to be in a church together and if we're going to reflect what God's called us to be we've got to be prepared to be offended by people whose backgrounds are different we've got to be aware that we might be offending other people and for somebody to actually point that out to us and that's not easy. In the early 80's Lynn and myself went out to Kenya because I was teaching, uh, had a job teaching in a government school there. Obviously a major part of our motivation was to serve the church there when we went. And in the end I ended up having quite a bit of responsibility for the church service on Sunday in the school because the vast majority of the pupils were boarders. And I didn't organise the services. That was done by some of the students. But it was often quite possible that the person they had invited to preach uh, didn't turn up, uh, possibly because they couldn't get transport to get there or whatever. So I was on about 10 minutes' call to preach if the preacher didn't turn up. So I always had a sermon outline uh, in the back of my Bible in case I needed it. But I was quite involved with that. But we wanted to be involved also uh, in uh, a local church. Obviously we couldn't get there every Sunday because of my commitments at the school. And we basically, we'd been going to the Baptist church here in Faversham before we went. So we ended up with really, we had three options. We could go to the local Baptist church where the service was in Swahili and uh, where the majority of the people who went to the service couldn't speak English. We could go to the Anglican Cathedral in the town which did an English language service and had a multi-ethnic uh, group, you know. it was. Not just, uh, when I say multi-ethnic, I don't just mean people who weren't Kenyan, people from different Kenyan tribes who maybe were working there uh, in full government or whatever. Or we could travel about somewhere between 20-25 miles uh, to the uh, M- Mumias Sugar Company, which was a project which was uh, funded by the Commonwealth Development Bank, and several of the managers there were British... And were Christians and used to have a sort of house church in one of their bungalows there. We did go to that once, and it was very nice. We had a swimming pool uh, in the uh, club, uh, work the manager's club, and uh, we got given there's, there's some Sikhs having a meal there as well, and we got given some of their food. It was a very nice thing, and it was nice being in a thing where people came the same background as yourself. But we decided that we needed to be in the Baptist church, even if we didn't, no, most of the time, we didn't understand what was going on. The big advantage of Swahili was, it was because it had been standardized by the Germans in what's now Tanzania, uh, it was very logical in how you pronounced it. So if you got a Swahili hymn book, once you knew the pronunciation rules, you could sing the hymns, even if you didn't know what the words meant. So that, that was uh, a uh, big advantage. And the, the uh, pastor used to, when he was giving Bible references, he'd give them to us in English as well so we could follow. But you have to make a choice do you go for the easy option or do you go for the, something which is a bit more difficult? And God will challenge us and make us, we have to face up to things. Another thing I remember in this sort of context, uh, 2005, when Lynn and I were looking at was it appropriate for us to go back to Africa at that point or should we be looking to go somewhere else? Or, as eventually happened, stay here. Uh, And we went on a New Frontiers life change team to South Africa. And at one of the Sunday services at the... uh, place we were serving there was somebody I got chatting to somebody at the end and he'd been born in Kenya he was an Afrikaner and he had been (coughs) born in uh, sort of one of the Afrikaner settlements up near Eldoret in the uh, north uh, west of Kenya not that far from where I'd worked uh, myself but as Kenya came to independence all of the Afrikaners basically packed everything back up and went back down to South Africa. How, when you, when I, you know, I had grown up on the uh, boycott South Africa movement in the 60s, <coughs> for one year, when I was uh, six, four miles a member of the anti-apartheid movement. How do you handle that sort of difference? But if we're Christians, we have to. God works with people, you might think, well, how could God, how could he, you know, your head gets, if you're not careful, your head can get a bit mangled up on these things. But we have to be prepared to have recognised as brothers and sisters, people whose backgrounds we might be dubious about. And they might be dubious about ours. It, you know, it works both ways, these things. But God is greater than any of the barriers any of us can put up. But we need to be aware of that and we need to be willing to work through those issues so that we can all worship together. So, as I come to an end, let's, I think. Always remember to be thankful for what God's given us, for what Jesus has done for us. Let's always do our utmost to make sure we do not bring any barriers between ourselves and other people in the church.